The reading is from Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing.
thank you for reading. May we pray. Lord God, in the busyness and noise of this day, help us to hear your voice. Amen. Well, thank you for your welcome. Thanks, Stephen, for your honesty. And thanks, Claire, for your introduction. As Claire said, uh, perhaps less frequently taught part of the Bible, the book of Job. We actually planned a Sunday sermon series going through the book of Job for last June, not realising, of course, when we planned that some teaching about suffering would be so very timely here in the capital. It became the month, of course, of London Bridge, Finsbury Park, Grenfell Tower. Sadly, of course, Job resonates every month with broken people the world over. And perhaps more than anything, suffering makes us question God. What's he doing? Is he good? Why? Why me? Can I ask you, what do you have that if you lost it, it would shake your faith? What sustains you on the days when your joy turns to disaster. Allow me to introduce us to one of the greats. Verse 1, in the land of us lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It means, as it goes on, that he feared God and shunned evil. And he was a great family man. Verse 2, he had seven sons and three daughters, clearly going for the full football team. And he made sacrifices for his children, literally, in verse 5. Great businessman, too, verse 3. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. And at the end of that sentence, 3, Time magazine seemed to have named Job as their person of the year because, you see, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Is it still true that us Brits don't like people who are too successful in any walk of life, slightly unseemly to do quite so well? Surely there must be a skeleton in Job's closet. No. But at least he must have become conceited, the self-made man. You may be familiar with Abraham Lincoln's proclamation rebuking his own country. He said, we've grown in numbers, wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. Job hadn't. Men wanted to be him. Children wanted to be fathered by him. Livestock wanted his name stamped on their backsides. I belong to Job, the great. But one day, in the middle of the 20th century, there was a man called Roy Sullivan who apparently was struck by lightning on seven separate occasions during his life and survived them all. The Guinness Book of Records reckon that's the most Ever. They don't say anything about how many fillings were in his teeth or whatever it was that caused it. 
But Job is metaphorically hit four times in a minute. You know those horrible phone calls that really shake you up? Well, the pace of the shocks here is just head-spinningly relentless. Donkeys and the donkey servants first, verse 15. They're attacked, all gone. Sheep and sheep servants, verse 16. Literally struck by some kind of light from the sky. And in verse 17, it's the camels, another raid. Happens sometimes in business. You hear dramatic stories of riches to rags. At least you've got your family to go home to, eh? Sentence 18. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. You might remember after the Manchester Arena bombing reading of the woman who was awakened from life support a couple of weeks after the disaster, only to be told the horrible news that her daughter had died. Ten children gone, just like that. It's too much to comprehend. We'll come back to Job's personal tragedy But it's important to know that it's more than just his life that is crashing down here. It's a whole way of seeing the world that's crumbling. This is certainly not Hollywood's way of seeing the world, is it? This kind of thing doesn't happen to the hero of the story. It goes against the grain of most morality and religion and, crucially... Isn't this wrong by the very framework that God himself has established in here? Listen to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Next week we will examine that kind of true truth. But for now, come with me for a peek behind the curtain of the universe. This is point two, if you're following on the sheet. Picture the scene on Google Maps. We're right outside the door of Job's house. And then we start clicking, you know, as you do, zooming out, zooming out, up from Job's house, through the clouds. Now you can see the globe. And as you keep clicking, even the globe becomes tiny. And where... Are we zooming to? Well, a place where there are angels, a Satan. Are we in God's throne room? It's certainly some kind of controlled centre. Let's rewind to before Job's life unravels. Sentence 7. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. The devil's been prowling around, as the New Testament tells us he is prone to do. And this glimpse behind the curtain probably raises more questions than it answers. Though one thing is clear, God is in control, as he is in control in this city today. Why do bad things happen to good people like Job? 
Well, his friends, we'll see next week, they're going to fully embrace the theory that it must mean Job wasn't so good after all. But another possible explanation says, maybe God's not so in control after all. He wants to bless the dwelling of the righteous, but his hands are somehow tied. That can't be right based on the evidence here. God sets the limits on Satan. Satan is a dangerous dog, but in verse 12 he is on God's leash. And perhaps uncomfortably, God is the one who initiates this whole conversation, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. Not only Time magazine, God in heaven agrees that Job is the best. Satan is a skeptic. Verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. Job's a fair weather worshipper. Easy to nod towards God when you've lived such a charmed life. But take it all away, and you won't find him in church singing all things bright and beautiful. Fair point, isn't it? Is anyone a true worshipper? Or are we all only in it with God for the stuff? So God gives permission. A terrible permission for Satan to test Job's faith. Now, we need to be careful here. We can't extrapolate from this and say that every time disaster strikes, it's because this precise conversation between God and the devil preceded it. But we Christians need to be honest about our God and what we believe about him. We mustn't try to get God off the hook, as it were, by saying that his control over human affairs is limited Uh, That he's just trapped in the journey of pain as well. No, just as he could intervene to end any suffering at any moment, and sometimes chooses not to, God could refuse this terrible permission, but chooses not to. We don't always understand his reasons. Here we get told something of the reason. Jesus speaks of other reasons for suffering. But this peek behind the curtain does remind us that as Job's tragedy is part of a bigger story, so are all of our griefs. Will we be able to remember that there's a Satan and a throne and a Lord, that there's the tested genuineness of believing faith, as 1 Peter puts it? which results in great glory. Now that's not at all to say that your personal story doesn't matter at all in the big scheme of things. Your story can shine in the heavenly places. It does mean though that my happiness right now is not the biggest story that I could be part of. Can you remain a worshipper, I wonder, even when you can't 
currently see the purpose in your pain? This is our final point. I was at a funeral recently of an old family friend. Douglas had been in the boys' brigade, and so we sang the boys' brigade anthem at the funeral. I don't know if anyone was in the boys' brigade. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you would admit to around here. Ah, there's one, okay. He looks like a good boy. Um, He was in the boys' Maybe you could give us the karaoke version at the end of the service of the boys' brigade anthem. Well, it's a wonderful old Christian hymn, actually, and one of the verses reads like this. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? Great questions. Are you anchored in anything that will prove solid when the storms come? Job, will your anchor hold? Watch this broken man in verse 20, just after he is told about his children. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And this is not a case of always look on the bright side of life. He's not emotionally detached, tearing his robe, shaving his head. Those are the signs of deep mourning. But no presumption about his entitlements. I, I came naked, I'll leave naked. No presumption or about what God is or isn't allowed to do. No accusations against God's character. Job's integrity as a worshipper is put through the mill and proves steadfast. Same in the next chapter when Satan is given permission to take away his health. And in terms of the tension of the book, that is basically it. Satan was wrong, Job was faithful, God was vindicated. The end. It's much messier though in the detail. 40 chapters of messiness as Job cries, wavers, wrestles with God. Of course he does. He's a real person. But this prayer at the end of chapter 1 is Job from his heart, at his best, the great man of the East. Surely this was his greatest hour. Will your anchor hold on your worst day? It's so inspiring when you see Christian believers whose faith is tested and shines. We lost my mother to cancer just a couple of months ago, uh, actually. And beauty is a strange word to use in the grim context of cancer. But mum's cheerful trust in Jesus shone to the end. And it really was beautiful to see. Satan must hate that kind of thing. Because if the best of times can't distract you from being a worshipper of God, and the worst of times can't drive you from being a worshipper in God, then in a real sense you can say you kind of become untouchable to the devil's schemes. 
We all need role models of how to suffer well. I wonder if you have some. Job is our model here. Not a perfect example as the chapters unfold, but in so many ways he shadows and points towards an even greater individual who suffered immaculately. Verse 21 here is beautiful. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Doesn't owe me a thing. And yet, praise be the name of the Lord. Can I ask you, are the material blessings that you enjoy the essence of your faith? Is he only my God to the extent that he is my provider? Hard to know, isn't it? We're, we're not to engineer disaster so that we could find out what's in our hearts. The dark times will surely come. I'm so sorry for you if you've found that they have already. And to all of us, remember Job's life of faith was actually nurtured while the good times rolled. The Lord gave. Are you in the habit of thanking the giver? Are you doing that humbly, acknowledging that he owes you nothing? Very easy to presume, isn't it, in terms of the blessings we feel owed, the control we expect to have over our lives, the explanations we feel entitled to. Job knew nothing of the conversation behind the curtain that we overheard. Of course he will go on to ask the why questions, as we do. And we'll see next week there's a loneliness described in Job's suffering. There is a loneliness in suffering that you may feel very familiar with. Some of the people that you're helping in your work may actually be Job-level sufferers. And yet, amazingly, he refuses to say that God has got this wrong. It'd be a real shame, wouldn't it, if our presumptuousness before Almighty God robbed us of the capacity to join in with this godly, godly prayer. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amen.